I'm Scott Lucas. This is World Unfiltered. As I speak to you, Turkey has another headline political issue. Ten former admirals have been arrested. Four have been asked to turn themselves in. Their suspected crime? They signed a declaration which criticized a proposed canal, the Istanbul Canal, of President Erdogan, saying that it might violate a 1936 international treaty, the Montreux Treaty. So how is it that an 85-year-old treaty and the Bosphorus and Dardanelles Straits becomes the basis for a headline clash between President Erdogan and the Turkish military? Well, certainly Turkey has a history of military coups in the 1960s and 1970s, and I believe there was a coup attempt only five years ago that might be on President Erdogan's mind. Certainly there are issues, economic issues, that we talked about in other Will Unfiltered podcasts. But how much of this has to do with something even deeper, which is the idea of polarization, a polarization in Turkish society across different classes, across different religious groups, and perhaps most significantly between those who have affiliations with different political parties. Well, I need to go to someone who can help me out, who can help all of us out. Professor Emre Erdogan, who is at Bilgi University in Istanbul, and also he is the coordinator of Turquoise, which is a project specifically to deal with the strategies that could combat what he sees, what his colleagues see, and what many others like myself see as the dangers of polarization. Professor Erdogan, welcome to World Hi. Unfiltered. Hi, thank you. Okay, I'm gonna start by quoting your own words at you yeah. to help me out as a student here. You've written recently that polarization is the next political pandemic after populism, mm -hmm. something which you also have written about as an international expert. That doesn't sound good. Yes. I'll Why are polarization and populism pandemics? And is there any relationship between the two of them in Turkey and in other places? Yes, unfortunately, it will be not only because of populism, because of other factors affecting to the rise of the populism in the world globally. And the most important issue is that, okay, the world was always polarized. We know it. There are different dimensions and definitions of polarization, but what's happening is now is affective polarization. It's something else. It's not only emotional, it's not irrational. When we are talking about affective polarization, we are talking about disliking other people. Because in democracies, that kind of diversity of opinions is normal. It has to be in that way. We need to be polarized. We cannot have same ideas, same opinions in every issue, but affective polarization is against the will to live all together. We don't like each other. That's the issue. We hate of each other. And it is called as political tribalism. Amy Chua wrote such a book. And it is recently called as sectarianism, something else. And some people, they are calling it as negative partisanship, as in the case of USA. They are voting for Biden because they don't like Trump, something like that, that kind of different definitions. But it's something effective. It's a typical question we are asking in Turkey and elsewhere. Would you like to 
marry your daughter, it's very important, daughter, with a supporter of the other party. 70% or 75% of people say no, we don't like that. It's a clear indicator of unwillingness to live all together. We don't want to be neighbors. We don't want to make business, et cetera, et cetera. We are measuring polarization in with different measures. The first one, a typical, do you like or not? That's okay. But we are also asking typical questions of social distance. Would you like to, to be a neighbor, et cetera, et cetera. Then we are asking a kind of moral superiority. We are listing some positive adjectives and we are listing some negative adjectives and we are asking to whom do they belong? To your party supporters or to the supporters of the other parties? There is a clear separation. All positive adjectives go to supporters of my party and all negative adjectives they are going to support of other party. And finally, we are asking some questions about political liberties. Would you like to them make press declarations, showing candidates, etc.? People, one third of people say that I don't like that. People are willing to take back these political rights. It's very important. It's not something oh, I don't like them, but they can do it. No, we don't like them and we want to take back the, their rights. It's not unique to Turkey. Some of these questions, they are already included in surveys in the US. There are too many studies asking that kind of questions, that kind of coexistence, this, that kind of moral tolerance, intolerance, et cetera, et cetera. Affective polarization leads to intolerance, political intolerance, and the removal of rights is very important. That's why it's a pandemic. It's not something natural. And it's something common. It's not uh, only observed in Turkey or in the US. It's also observed in the UK and some other countries in France, in Poland, it's rising. It spreads out. It's a pandemic, we know it. It's related with populism because populism is based on a very simple distinction between us versus them. Us, we the people. We we are pure, we are the owner of the country, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they are working for foreign countries. There is a moral imbalance here. And affective polarization is something about morality. There is a moral distance between the different tribes. These two phenomena, they are related to each other. Populist leaders, they are exploiting polarization, they are using this polarized rhetoric and they are polarizing the country. It's a kind of cycle, vicious cycle. That's why they are related. Wow, there's so much there to unpack. Um, let me start yeah. with this idea, and I think it's a very helpful idea of effective polarization, where you talked about, outlined just then this notion that there is social distancing. Not the social yeah. distancing of the pandemic, yeah. but the social distancing. I don't want my daughter marrying someone from that group. I don't want to be neighbors with someone of that group. Is that effective polarization as defined by political party? Say AKP versus the opposition. Is that something which is distinctive in 2021? Or have we seen that for some time? Could we go back 20 years ago and see that effective polarization as defined by political parties in Turkey? I'm not sure. 
because yeah, it's becoming deeper and deeper by every day. In during 1990s, we had five political parties, each of them got 20%, each of them ruled country for six months to 12 months, etc. like that. But now there's the art party rules since 2002. We have one party and party identities, it's very important, party choices, they are becoming social identities. Here comes the famous social identity theory of Teichwell and Turner. And theoretically, when we are looking at the works of Downs or other guys, party choice should be something rational, something based on utility, etc. It's my choice. I can change my choice, but now we cannot change. It's my identity. You cannot change your identity. It's becoming your skin. That's why it's not easy to, okay, I'm leaving art party and I'm shifting that part. They are leaving art party and they are shifting to MHP, the closest party the other smaller uh, partner of the coalition. That's why it is not possible. And there are too many maps, but we can create that kind of maps. We can put parties and we can put identities. We, all, we are observing that there are two dimensions. On the east part of the map, we have HTP, the Kurdish party mm. with Kurdish identity, okay. At the north part of the map, we have CHP with secularists and other guys. On the southern part, we have AK party and MHP, nationalist, conservative, etc. These are identities and political party preferences, they are collocated. On the other hand, you can produce the same map by using provinces. Southeastern provinces, they are located on the eastern part, and etc. Izmir, Istanbul, and other western part, they are located, collocated with CHP. Same map, almost same map. And within provinces, you can produce the same map with neighborhoods. Same map, we are segregating identities and geographies. We are segregating this issue. That's why it is not easy to recompile. We are losing the middle ground. We are losing the middle ground everywhere because there is a huge segregation, geographical segregation in Istanbul. You can easily see, for example, in Beşiktaş, in, in the district of Istanbul, 75% of voters, they are voting for CHP. But we have some other districts, they are voting for our parties strictly. We have that kind of segregation. That's why it is not easy to reshuffle it because we lost mobility. We lost social mobility and we, we lost geographical mobility. That's why I'm, I'm not very optimistic about the issue. So people are locking themselves into a party identity because their parents or their siblings have, or their neighbors have that identity. Yes. But, I mean, but that Not parents has... because we don't have party institutionalization in Turkey. All parties, they are young, but yeah, because of yeah, other factors. But, but I, I, yeah, I mean, growing up in America, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the exception here. I mean, my parents might disown me because they'll say we were Republicans and our parents were Republicans. I'm not. I guess what I'm saying is we do have that type of identity in the states, but is the difference here now that it's not just that you have your identity, if someone else has a different political identity, say HDP, pro-Kurdish party, yes, if you're AKP, that HDP person is automatically beyond engagement, yes. beyond even respect. Yes. Is that, so that type of identity by political party that effective polarization by political party, 
Is that greater now than say an effective polarization by religion in Turkey? Is it greater than an effective polarization than saying, I'm very rich and you're not? In other words, does political party now trump other social and economic factors in the country? It seems so because it was the most important puzzle of Turkey because working classes, they were voting for religious parties in Turkey, mm-hmm. not for socialist parties or social democrat parties. It's similar to US for in a, a way, yeah. For example, supporters of CHP, they are more educated, more westernized because it was based on the clash of values, lifestyles, preferences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then it has been materialized. For many years, religious parties prior to AK Party, there were too many, they were accepted as the party of the periphery. But after 1990s, we said that, okay, the periphery has been penetrated to the center and it formed the center. It's very important. It's not something about getting the high spots. It's about the values, choices, consumption patterns, wearing hat scarves and driving big jeeps, etc. A kind of mixture of Western and Eastern. We have too many examples. It's something bigger. To, Choices, this kind of preferences, they are very important. They are very different. By looking at this preference, for example, what kind of music do you listen? What kind of books do you read? What kind of TV shows do you watch? You can easily understand for which political party you are voting. That's a segregation. Okay, so it's we something have, bigger than party choice. We almost have a performative politics in all our areas of life. Yeah. To, to what extent, is this polarization, this effective polarization, is it being led by the current president, President Erdogan, or is he just simply using that polarization? In other words, the polarization is already there and he'll just take advantage of it. Yeah, first of all, he's a populist. First of all, we need to accept it. Without that, you know, we are, uh, we are using different authoritarian, competitive authoritarian, illegal expert. He's a populist. He's using this rhetoric regularly. He was always using this rhetoric. And this rhetoric is based on the clear distinction between us versus them and us is the pure people, pure people of Anatolia. And every time, every time he locates these pure people above the politics. He says that I am the representative of these people. I am speaking on behalf of these people. I'm advocating the interests of these people and all these guys they are foreigners. He's using this rhetoric and that's why he can easily contribute this polarization. Yeah, a important thing is that we are conducting regular referenda. We are, uh, since 2007, we had the first one about uh, a constitutional change. Since 2010, we are conducting referenda or referenda-like elections. We are voting for Erdogan against Erdogan, it's clear. And it polarizes every day because it's a kind of constant sum game or it's a zero sum game, you are losing and they are winning, that's the problem. Secondly, we are conducting irregular and informal referenda. For example, we are discussing Kanal uh, Istanbul or we are discussing these uh, journals or we are discussing uh, alcohol consumption every day by every day, we are voting informally to the social media. 
through our discussions in our everyday life, and we are committing ourselves to our previous choices. That's a problem. We are linking ourselves. We are chaining. We are chained by our previous preferences, and we are not willing to change our side because we have too many emotional investment in our previous choices. He's conducted that kind of regular referendum. He's very good. He's very good in creating scapegoats. Mm. He's very good in conducting that kind of referendum, in this, that kind of informal referendum. So that, what struck me there was a word of, of purity, the, the purity yeah. of someone from Anatolia, yeah. or I assume someone the purity of who is in the Justice and Development Party, AKP. Does that mean by definition that a follower of the HDP, which is associated with the Kurdish movement, that that person would be impure in that type of rhetoric? Does it go that far? Yeah, the issue is that they are impure, impure because they are not Turkish. First of all, it, it's, it, there's a national space. But on the other hand, in 2014, mm -hmm. uh, we wrote a piece about the presidential race and we said that, okay, Erdogan is the populist and Demirtas, the leader of the HDP, the candidate of the HDP, was also a populist. He, they are playing same game. That, that's magic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is not easy to be non-populist when you are competing with a populist person. Similarly, Imamoglu, the mayor of Istanbul, he's also populist. And we conducted a research just before the second round of elections, and we observed that supporters of Imamoglu, they, they have very strong populist attitudes. They are not anti-populist. This is a language of politics in Turkey, being a populist, being per something from the people, something who's advocating the people. The definition of people change. That's the issue. So let's talk about populism. I, I've always had this strange entry point into populism, not as an academic, just growing up, because in the United States, for me, the history of populism, uh, the movement of the people, in the early 20th century to, to get rights, to get a better economic position, I consider that to be very inclusive, right? Not exclusive in us versus them. Is it possible in Turkey right now to promote a populism, which is not a populism of division, we the people versus the other, but a populism of unification or a, a populism of consensus as it were? Can you cross kind of those boundaries of polarization? Yeah, a kind of republicanism. Yeah, yeah. something. Yeah, it's, it's possible. But the issue that, yeah, when we look at the rise of our party, it was inclusive. How? Because during 1990s, we had very bad days. Economic crisis, earthquakes, too many governments, coalition governments, like, so you cannot imagine. And people thought that, okay, this is because of these bankers, this, uh, this, there's these media moguls, foreign investors, et cetera, et cetera. People suffer, they said that we are suffering because of these foreign agents. They are against the association of businessmen. They are against these westernized guys. They were alienated. And Erdogan says, okay, I will change the game. I will put the people on the first part of the game. And we reshuffled the income distribution. Okay, some rich people became richer. It didn't change all these conglomerates, but yeah, during time, some people had good money. Our lifestyle changed. All of us, we have big TVs and we have cars, etc. Turkey had a good days. And 
ordinate. For example, a classic example is airplanes. Airplane tickets were very, very expensive before 2000s. Erdogan made them very cheap. And he built a lot of airports everywhere and you can, everyone became able to buy a ticket to fly to house, mm. to her village, etc. Do you see the picture? It's changed in that way. It was, that I can say it was inclusive to everybody, but within time it changed because yeah, because of this economic crisis, because of corruption and other stuff, it changed and it started to be exclusive. And there is a huge shift in the rhetoric of Erdogan before 2013 and after 2013. He changed a lot. Okay, so 2013. So we have this early phase of Erdogan and AKP where you're able to be inclusive because everyone's benefiting. Everyone's progressing. Yeah. Then you hit the economic challenges and you start playing us versus them. Why 2013? Is it because of the Gezi Park protest, the mass movement? Yeah, it started by 2008 when the Constitutional Court tried to close down AK Party because other parties, uh, uh, for example, Welfare Party, etc., they were all closed down. There's a huge problem here. Uh, perhaps you know the theory of choosing trauma of Van Volkan. You are, for building an identity, you are picking up a trauma, a chosen trauma. You are reproducing this trauma a day by day. That's the logic. And the chosen trauma of the Islamist movement is the exclusion from the government. For example, uh, they uh, set up a government in 1990. Uh, six Arabakan led the uh, government, and after one year, the military intervened. They closed down the party, etc. You cannot rule the country. They said that okay, people are voting for us, but we cannot rule. They don't allow us. This is chosen trauma, and uh, we conducted a kind of research in 2015. We talked with youngsters about othering before this polarization issue. We heard that they were very young, but they were talking about this February 28th intervention, and they were linking this intervention with the previous coup d'etat, military interventions of 1916, military intervention of 1980. For example, uh, when Erdogan was a mayor, he bought some big ships, and the name of these ships was Adnan Menderes, the leader of the Democratic Party, uh, Turgut Özal, another populist politician, and his name, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, three big ships, and that's the historical link. He didn't try to link him to Erbakan or other guys. That's, that's why it's a chosen trauma of the Islamist movement. Then in 2006, uh, 2008, the Constitutional Court tried to close down the party. With one vote, to my knowledge, they failed. It's a huge history. And 2013, when Gezi protests happened, Erdogan perceived it, it as a threat towards him, to overthrow him. And yeah, you know, the, what's happened in Egypt, the intervention of Sisi, etc., etc., yeah, mm. all this issue. And that's why he became very skeptic. And after then, they had a clash with this Fethullah Gülen organization. Then in 2016, we had that kind of 
coup attempt. They said, okay, we are under threat. It's something existential. We are threatened by, first, foreign actors, always there are some scapegoats, and their collaborators in that country. And that it became the dominant rhetoric of, not only of AK Party, but also its minor partner, MHP, the Nations Action Party. The country is under threat. And they try to advocate. That's why the rhetoric change and about economics, etc. They are presenting and they are observing and presenting all what's happening as a threat to the country, existential threat. Okay, so what I'm getting from this in terms of this effective polarization, you talked about it at the grassroots among people, but at the highest level, do I have a polarization here, which is of the current president versus institutions? You go back to 2008, you describe the running battle that he has with courts. You talk about, obviously, the battle with the Gulenist movement, with whom he was once allied, but whom he blames for the coup in 2016. But it's also the president versus the military, as we've seen for some time. Arguably, it's now the president versus his own economist with the replacement of the head of the central bank. Are we locked into a polarization at the highest levels of us versus them, which is President Erdogan, the state, it's me, versus all other institutions? Yeah, it's, it's very strange because if you put, in that way, you are right. Yeah, he's the state. Uh, like Louis XIV, I'm the state. Yeah, you know, he said. But um, Ajemolo, and uh, wrote a piece about Hugo Chavez when he was analyzing Venezuela, what's happening in Venezuela. He said that all these populist persons, they are against these checks and balances institutions because they said that they are restricting the will of the people. Erdogan is not only the state, he's the will of the people. He's the embodiment of the people. He, he's directly, he has been directly elected by the people. But what about this central bank governor? He appointed him. And what about all these members of constitutional court? Who elected them? They are appointed. That is something else. Okay, of course, the state is something else. But Erdogan says that, okay, I am the people. And I am controlling the state on behalf of people. There is a, there's a, a small difference between the rhetoric of Erdogan and Bahçeli, the leader of NAP, because we studied his speeches in 2018 elections. Uh, okay, they are ultra-nationalist, these guys. And according to Pippa Norris and her friends, MHP, this political party is populist. But they are not populist. When you are reading their rhetoric, they are advocating the state, not the people. It's something different. They are acting on behalf of state and uh, ironically, the leader's name is means State, yes, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, they, are, they are advocating the state, not the people. They love the state because they love the nation. So it's something sophisticated, but Erdogan's rhetoric is something different. He's the people, exactly. So if he can mobilize enough people versus yes. those who might not be his people, Gezi Park in 2013, the Gulenist, those who support the HTP, the Kurdish party, he continues to succeed. But you mentioned earlier that Erdogan, in a way, the shift in Erdogan is because of the economic shift, that he yeah. couldn't be inclusive. 
Now, here we are in 2021, and I'm going to paraphrase Karl Marx via an advisor to Bill Clinton, James Carville. It's the economy, stupid. If the Turkish <laughs> economy, if the Turkish economy continues to run into trouble, and we saw the currency have another 12% depreciation recently, if we see problems with trade, investment, productivity, yeah. can Erdogan continue to appeal to the people, his brand of populism, if the economy runs into crisis? Yeah, it's important because yeah, you said it's not economy, that's the issue. Okay, yeah, the issue is that um, some very reputable scholars, they are conducting macro level analysis and they said that to keep your voting base unit 5% growth area in Turkey, you are losing your base by day by day. It's this logic at macro level. And inflation is, is something harassing your voting base. Unemployment, same, and GDP growth is positive. You know, all these economic theories. Okay, but still they conducted this model and they made an error of 10 percentage points. According to them, the AK party would get about 40%, something like that, the, co the coalition, and at the end of the day, at 52%. The macroeconomic model didn't work because of course there are some realistic factors, there are that kind of economic factors, but there are some psychological factors. We know it. In 1970s, Fiorina wrote something about it. The first of all, attribution of responsibility. Who is the responsible of this crisis? For example, in 2018, we had a huge economic fluctuations after uh, elections because of this uh, Brunson issue, you know, mm -hmm. the clash between Trump and Turkey, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I was uh, I wasn't interested in media. I thought that okay, it's clear because of mismanagement, etc. Et then I went out. We conducted a focus group, and I asked people why we are getting these problems. What is the reason of these problems? And they said, uh, shoppers, they are creating, they are selling goods in a high price. Come on, okay, we had economic crisis, exchange. Uh, no, this is because of these guys, market owners. Grocery shops, come on, do you see? Because he was producing this idea. Okay, this is not my problem. I'm managing very well, but you see all these traitors, they are manipulating prices and people are buying it. This polarization, if you are living in a polarized environment, things are becoming very sophisticated sometimes. For example, foreign policy issues. I started work on politicization uh, in foreign policy because foreign policy is very sophisticated. It's not easy to understand who is you and what's going on. Okay, you are looking at your leader. He says, let's go. You say, okay, let's go. He says, let's say, okay. You say, you say, let's say, because they are very sophisticated. This is the candidate queue or presidential queue or something like that, leadership queue. You are getting cues about very sophisticated issues. Economy, something like that. Okay, we have inflation. What is the inflation rate in Turkey? The government says 13 or 15%, and some people they are calculating as 40%. Your decision is based on your partisanship. That's the issue. That's the psychological factor. Okay, you have some economical factor. It was my argument before last local elections. I said that, okay, we have someone, he's 
homo economicus. And we have someone else. He's interested in emotions, identity issues, perceptions, etc. And they are balancing each other. Knowledge, whenever Erdogan loses in the economics, he's playing with the psychological area. And so there's, there's, there's so a balance. The cycles reinforce. Yeah. So in other yeah. words, you, if the economy goes down, you simply, once again, go back to the effective polarization yes. linked to populism. I represent you, the people, versus these forces who are really the ones responsible for the economic yes. downturn. Okay. Yes, and people, they are adjusting themselves to what's going on in the economy. For example, inflation, okay, it rises, then you are adapting yourselves. Exchange rates is very important, but you are adapting to yourselves. The current levels, US dollar was 60L, then it became 80L, perhaps it will be 10TL. I will, okay, what's going on? I will say, but then I, I will accept it. And to my knowledge, in, in the US, there is a barrier there, five US dollar per gallon, something like that. Before this price, people, they don't realize, they don't understand price change. It's something psychological. I've seen the same phenomenon in all places of Iran, actually, where you have those yes. current economic issues with the US sanctions. And if there's an economic downturn, you appeal to the people versus the Americans. Mm. But let's talk about then about a way out. You have written about the need to reinforce the legitimacy and the effectiveness of institutions and of social spaces. So you've talked about the legitimacy and effectiveness of the courts, the legitimacy and the effectiveness of education, for example. Uh, as I said, you're the coordinator of an institute which is promoting strategies to deal with this. What is the way out of the damage of effective polarization in Turkey right now? Or is there a way out at the moment? Yeah, it's not easy because my argument, none, uh, not all members of team accept it, but my argument is that we cannot accept uh, expect this from politicians because pro all politicians they are using polarization mm -hmm. from opposition from the government it doesn't change if you are playing in a polarized environment it's very easy you don't need to develop good uh, policies you don't need to explain your policies you will say okay I'm against him that's sufficient Politi all, all politicians from government from the opposition we, we cannot accept it. that's why we need to act as citizens. We need to accept it. We need to create a kind of awareness about the results, about the problems which polarization creates. We, know, we need to know it. Okay, polarization is something bad, first of all. First, there is a polarization. Second, it's not something good. And this is our argument. We are not looking for the responsible. Okay, it's easy to say Erdogan is responsible or other people, yeah, it's easy. We are trying to develop solutions and we need to accept that politicians, they are not solution. They are the part of the problem, they cannot solve it. Individuals can be a part of solution by empowering individuals because there are some individual level mechanisms which create that kind of polarization. Filter bubbles, for example, they are working for polarization. Echo chambers, they are working for polarization. Thinking fast, 
is working for polarization. The lack of liberal education in Turkey, lack of civil society, lack of mainstream media, all this stuff, they are contributing polarization. And now, if you want to act against polarization, we need to act against ourselves because polarization is the easiest way. Okay, I can live very happily under polarization. I don't like them. I don't, I'm living in a very good neighborhood of Istanbul. I don't see them. I can vote for my own party and I can feel myself morally superior. In Facebook, I can uh, have very good friends and in Twitter, I can follow uh, that kind of users that I can be very happy, be sure. Everyone can be very happy, happy in that way. But sometimes we need to act against ourselves. We need to act against our instincts because this is something based our, in our instincts. We are, we are preferring to live in tribes, 50 persons, 100 persons is sufficient, but we have a 2000 years of civilization here, modernization, we have modernization and we have too many uh, uh, good things provided by modernization. That's why we can act in that way as citizens. That's why in our project, we are not dealing with politicians. We are dealing with citizens. We are trying to develop lectures to give some insight about what's going on in polarization. How much am I polarizing? That's the issue. Am I polarizing or not? Do I have polarizing attitudes or not? Do I know enough people who brings diversity in my life? Do I live in echo chamber or not? What's going in my social media? Do I test issue? We are trying to bring the attention to the individual. And that's why we are trying to create a kind of awareness about the issue. Because politicians, they won't do it. So that notion of the individual and the community, if I could link it to something else that you, you've also written about recently. You spoke about the challenge of coronavirus yeah. and responding to the pandemic. And I wonder if I might offer this or, or, or suggest, is it possible that out of the tragedy of coronavirus, there is this promotion of a collective responsibility and collective action that could challenge polarization. And I'm, I'm thinking of examples such as the small examples, but significant like New Zealand, where that idea of the collective has been elevated. We have seen it very much in the Biden administration in the United States, trying to repair the damage uh, of that country, talking about collective responsibility, and it has deaths and cases are down there. Is there a hope that coronavirus shakes up individual countries and individual communities enough that there yes. will be this response to polarization. Yes, yeah, you are right. I wrote something in Turkish recently and said that, okay, coronavirus should be the biggest denominator because it kills us. Yeah. We know it. It doesn't discriminate political party, ethnicity, etc. It kills us. And only and only if we can protect ourselves, we can survive, independent of party preference, etc. That's the logic. That's, but the question, why we are not the behaving in that way. For example, in the US, there's a huge polarization about the measures against uh, coronavirus, about wearing masks. We conducted a recent research about infodemics, the misinformation issue, because in Turkey, okay, it's very common. Okay, they are not polarized on measures. 
Yeah, in Turkey, people say, okay, I'm supporting, but we are polarized about information sources. We are so polarized. Okay, that's why it was my argument that there are two ways. The first, the government can be inclusive and can try to include all political actors at the national level and at local level. And it could try to include all non-political actors such as Chamber of Commerce or uh, that kind of medical associations and other stuff. It could govern the crisis in that way. Or the second way, it, will, it could try to govern the crisis through a, a kind of autocracy. I decided to that. I don't need consultation. I don't need to give information. No transparency, no consultation, no inclusion. And we had some small fights between local governments and central government, et cetera, et cetera. We are polarized in that way. We are not polarized in measures, et cetera. It could be a good opportunity to create. This is what's happening in the issue of women uh, rights. In Turkey, you know, we, the government decided to let this famous Istanbul agreement, yeah. Uh, we conducted a research and we wrote a piece about it. Of course, there is a kind of politicization on the issue, but about 80% of each political party supporters, they say that, okay, there is a violence against women in Turkey. There's an agreement. The question is, okay, we are agreement on that. What is the next step? And in the next step, they said, the government is responsible. The education system is responsible. Okay, we are... We have disagreement on the solution. We, are, we have disagreement on the responsible of the problem. But we said, okay, there is a problem. This is the first stage, okay, the problem. Similarly, coronavirus, there's a problem. Who is responsible and who will act against? That's the question. If you say that, okay, this is not my problem, the government should act. We are polarizing against. Because for the opposition, this is the best way. Okay, this is the way of coronavirus. It will kill many people and only I will say that, okay, the government is responsible. I won't try to be involved. And the government, of course, they, they don't prefer to include the opposition. That's, they, these are same stuff. We have agreement on the problem, coronavirus and other stuff, uh, violence, domestic violence, etc. But in the policy part or in developing solutions, we don't have dialogue. We are acting in a very exclusionary way. That's the problem. So, final question. On the one hand, you've given us quite a challenge that's there, polarization, populism, uh, manipulative politics, misinformation. On the other hand, you've talked about civic responsibility, civic action, almost a community, the resurrection of a public sphere, right? Yeah. Are you hopeful that your side can come out on top? Yeah. Whenever we are discussing this stuff, I say that, okay, uh, during 1980s, we had a very strong Kemalist education in our primary or secondary school. And these people produced a party government against the, against, uh, the Kemalist indoctrination. Okay, indoctrination is very nice, but we have Google, we have YouTube, we have other stuff. I have a son of 14 years old and we are not speaking the same language at the end of the day. The change, 
the will of change is very strong in this country. People, they, they want to have better lives. 35% of youngsters, they want to live abroad, not in Saudi Arabia and in uh, Iran or Iraq. They want to live in the US, UK, Germany. And we had plus program in every university and people had a chance to visit other countries. Of course, we have coronavirus, we have isolation, but the willingness of people to have better lives is not preventable. It's against the wind. Okay, that's why it's the, I, I'm hopeful of my son, hopeful of my students, not of my generation, unfortunately. They will have better life. Because, yeah, Erdogan is the key. We cannot have uh, another leader like Erdogan. That's the issue. He's, uh, that, that's why, yeah, that's the key. I'm going to leave it with the hope for your son yes. while leaving thank President you. Erdogan to the side and say thank you, Emre Erdogan. You're uh, welcome. For offering a bit of, a bit of hope, uh, but throughout this 40 minutes, an incredible education about both the challenges we face and the responsibility that lies ahead. Let me also thank the great people at Deep Dive Politics uh, who have put us on air today and held it all together. But let me thank most of all you, dear viewer, you. for joining us on the journey. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at dive underscore politics on Facebook. It's Deep Dive Politics. All our videos are on the YouTube, but also you can listen to podcast versions of all our interviews on Spotify. Uh, but for now, and in alliance with Professor Emre Erdogan, let me say stay safe. Thank you. Stay sane and be decent to each other. I'm Scott Lucas, and this has been World Unfiltered.